Welcome to the seventh episode of Outsiders, the Lesbian Librarian. My name is Julia Curtis Burns, and I am your host. And today I am joined by Sean Smith Cruz. Really, it's Shanta Smith Cruz, but you can call me Sean. And what do you do, Sean? What do I do besides women? <laughs> this is a piece. Oh, is it PC? It's I, fine. It's a lesbian librarian. Yeah. I also um, am a librarian. I am the head of reference at the Graduate Center Library. I'm also um, a volunteer coordinator at the Lesbian Her Story Archives. Ooh. And what else do I do? I make zines with my imprint, Lambe Press. And I like to interview women, too, sometimes, but I haven't done it in a while, uh, who are turning 30. Oh. And they're for women of color in a project called Her Saturn Returns. So you're going to talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, right? and I like to talk about housing. So we can go many directions. This is why this episode is called The Lesbian Librarian, <laughs> because Sean is just like a powerhouse of resources. Um, so to begin, Sean, mm-hmm. I always like to talk about identity, because I think it's important okay. in how you define or identify. So what term do you feel most comfortable with? Or do you even claim a term? I do claim a term. I claim a term of separatism. Um, so I have been known to call myself a lesbian separatist, although nowadays there's so little lesbians left that that means I'm standing alone often. And then that's not so fun. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> Most <laughs> people go back. So you said that there are so little lesbians left. Yes. But what, what, what does that mean? I don't it understand. It means that there is a, there is some sort of migration, which others see as an evolution from lesbian to queer, you know? Mm. Even though I see queer as an umbrella term, I identify as queer also, but I do use the L word, if not D for dyke. Mm. Um, anything that is focused on me as a woman who loves women, that's the term that I use. And mm. queer is just too broad. It's it too broad ca- for It doesn't you. capture the nuance of mm. the vagina. Okay. Yes. Yes. Okay. So <laughs> lesbian is... <laughs> Lesbian is a term that you feel is more solid in terms of... It's direct. There's no question around right. it. There's no penis hanging around, necessarily, unless it's something that's purchased and probably latex or glass. Okay. Julia is blushing. <laughs> I'm blushing. I wasn't ready for all of this. Um, okay. I use... I've, I've always used gay. Yeah, I don't use gay because gay feels like it's for boys. Mm. And I'm not really gay. Like, some things are gay. Like, I was talking to my wife. I'm married. And we have a relationship where we date outside of the marriage. And so, mm. you know, we, like, talk about the women we're dating. And With each other? Like, we were talking to each other. Oh, okay. About women we were dating, not each other. Okay. <laughs> and so, you know, I tend to lean as a femme. And she leans butch. And um, and I date butch women primarily. And so then I said to her, you know, I think I have to start dating femmes. And she was like, are you sure? And I was like, yeah, that's kind of gay, right? Because in other words, oh. it's it's very homo to date someone of the same, like, gender expression. Right. It's like stud on stud or butch exactly. butches. Yeah. It's not, like, usually if I date a femme, then I have to butch it up a little, which is fine because I kind of do that. 
And if I'm dating a bunch, then I'm like super femme. And it, that's just what happens. And so I like to be super femme, so I like to date bunches. Mm. Whereas if I were dating another femme woman, then it would be kind of gay. And I don't really lean gay. What are you, when you say you feel like you have to butch it up or thin it up, what does that even look like for you? What does that mean? It means that I feel more comfortable when that there's a balance. So I, I always say that I'm um, heterosexual and homo, no, no, I'm sorry. I'm homosexual and heterogendered, right? Mm. Because I like different, I like the balance of a little spoon and a big spoon. And like, I want there to be someone to hold the door open so the other person can walk through. And I like, it's not really gender roles as much as it's um, like a dance. Like it's like this in and out, push and pull, top, bottom. Like a balance. Yeah, I like that sort of way to coexist with another person. Mm. So when I think of like, you know, two fans, I just think of two people standing around staring at each other going, who's going to do what first? And so you don't think like, two femmes can work? It's I mean, obviously like they a, do. There has to be some sort of a... I find that there's one usually... It up. Exactly. One is a little bit harder mm. than the other. Hmm. And that's, and I think that that's beautiful. I think that's beautiful, too. I think that um, when I think about what I'm attracted to, it's always energy more than... I mean... Yes, looks. But it's always energy. Right, anybody... And most about, women are beautiful. So yeah, about, I think about... Yeah. Uh, I really enjoy feminine energy, so I enjoy someone who has a little more of that than I do, and we right. kind of balance each other out. That exactly. Way. Yeah. So you know what I'm saying. I know what you're saying. So I know you're, what you're, you're saying. You're not gay. You're a lesbian. <laughs> I am. <laughs> wow. Sorry, I'm not trying to tell you what you are. I am. You are Julia. I'm Curtis Julia Barnes. Curtis Burns. I Burns. Just, I always say Bar- Barnes. It's because my cousin's name is Barnes. Yeah, anyway. yeah. I have two <laughs> last names. Um. So tell us a little bit about what you do here and um, why you do what you do. Like why, why have you been interested in working in libraries? Well, I'm a Capricorn. And so... <laughs> Capricorns! Yes. That means that I am, have issues with control and that I like to have it. And more so, um, I am interested in information and I like to know where things are. Like, I need, I don't feel set unless I'm aware of where I stand, the context for which I'm standing there, how I got there, how to get out, all of that. So I find mm-hmm. the world is a, a place of information, data, just swimming around us, and we can grab to it um, and place ourselves within it, or we can be lost and, like, be ushered one direction or another. So mm-hmm. I prefer to feel in control of the world that I'm in or the world that I've created for myself. And to me, that meant information science, like really focusing on where things are, you know, how they got there, who puts it there, who can move it, you know, all that. Um, And libraries are the place where that sort of magic happens, or at least is called upon, or at least is named or is directed. Mm -hmm. And I get to participate in, um, for a small community, whatever community I'm in. So if I was a public librarian, then it's participating with the public um, but right now I work for an academic community, mm-hmm. um, but it's the third largest urban university in the world. No, CUNY. in the country. Um, CUNY. Mm-hmm. I'm a CUNY girl. So <laughs> I really love it. And I get to work with a lot of LGBT, um, researchers cause I work at the graduate school, which is furnishes the doctoral degrees. And nowadays most doctoral degrees are queer, <laughs> which is obviously <laughs> not true, but in my mind, 
everything is clear. Um, And it's it's a really great way to contribute to students' development, but also contribute to the landscape of information. They're the ones creating the new knowledge for tomorrow, and we can inform in some ways, um, direct and inform their process. So mm. it's a it's a pretty great job. And I'm around books. I like to write. You like so, to write. So are you currently writing something? I am like currently to share writing. with us. Actually, I would even. I mean, yes. There's a, two things I'm currently doing. So okay. firstly, I'll I'll start with one that's not going to lead to sexy. So this one. <laughs> Um, so there's okay. this, it sort of is a referral to my separatist tendencies. Um, the Michigan Women's Music Festival. Mm. Uh, it's last year was last year in 2015. And I went to the last year. I was also there a few years prior. Um, so I've been there a few times. And I'm working on editing a journal issue to honoring the Michigan Women's Music Festival. Mm-hmm. And the deadline was just yesterday. So we're I was just here going through all the submissions and seeing what people sent. And a lot of people sent images. And I was almost in tears seeing the women on the land and the women in the women of color tent and uh, just holding each other topless, sing, singing, painted faces, the drumming, the drumming circle, the fire pits. I mean, just it's just, it was essentially a week in... Michigan that happened every August for the past 40 years. 40 years? Yeah. Wow. And so the last year was uh, last year. And we want to honor that space because it was really a beautiful, magical, community-focused, community-centered, uh, community-built space. And um, why did it come to an end? It came to an end. I think the times have just shifted. Mm-hmm. There was definitely controversy surrounding... Um, the question of inclusion and defini- defining woman, mm. right? It's the Michigan Women's Music Festival. Um, and ultimately, I uh, there are many um, directions and many angles to that conversation, which at this stage, as things fall apart, those angles and challenges seem to just equal demise and mm. closure, and that makes me sad. So I don't think that the conversation was something we anyone grew from, because now there's one less space. Um, and with the closing of all the dark bars, and the, you know, I was just in California last week, and I was Ooh. so excited to go to the Lexington Club, and I was in California this past um, June, or was it, it was July, and for an ASA conference, and I went, and I happened to be at the, at the Lexington Club, and it was really cute. Had a good time, met some friends there, and I didn't know that was going to be my last time. Mm. You know, I know I do feel like there's so many. I mean, so Sean and I met like ten years ago, mm-hmm. and was it ten years? ago? It was ten years ago. It's so That's old. So crazy. Um, but there were so many places that you showed me, like mm-hmm. Caddyshack was mm-hmm. one oh my God, that, was that I loved, that was and it's. I mean, it was so great. I used to go there like every weekend. I know. No, I but lived there. I it's, lived. Yeah. Jazz, it was such my a wife, community. She was a, on the softball team. Yeah. It was such a yeah. great community and that closed. And there are so many of these wonderful closing spaces. spaces. And a closing. lot of them are women's spaces. So Mitch Fest is one of the, it's part of this sort of end of spaces. Um, there's actually going to be a eulogy to a dyke bar um, uh, event in Mar- early March, March 3rd to 6th in New York City, and um, Mason Reed is the curator of that, and they wanted me to speak on the panel, but I won't be at the student view at the archives, so I won't be able to go, um, mm. 
because the lesbian hysterica still does exist. So I'm going to go support that as opposed to support sort of an art piece about the closing of lesbian spaces. <laughs> so um, c- could you tell us a little bit about the lesbian hysteria archives? Yeah. Um, what is it? I know, right? What's it all about? So what I love about lesbian women <laughs> is our ability to embrace each other and create spaces for community empowerment, support, upliftment. And I like that it actually, um, lesbians have the ability to distribute power in a way that allows all of us to receive our greatness and achieve our greatness. And that's been a historical trait for lesbian organizing. So the Lesbian Hearts Archives was also created four years ago, similar to the time that Mitch Fest was created. And this one is still around. So I feel... Uh, you know, extremely indebted to maintaining the space. It's a collectively run space. And so everyone who's there gets to participate as much and as fully as they would like to. And that means that it's not about, you know, arguing with people, do this and do that, or fighting against some larger force. You're Mm -hmm. not, you know, you're oppressing me and you're not making me do this. It's like, oh no, if you want to see something done, you do it yourself. So it's a community. It's a community of women who are doing the work. Um, it's actually one of two collective spaces that are still around from that time. The other is the La Cafe Theater, mm. um, which we also have frequented together, <laughs> which is yes. uh, the old swimming and trans theater space, and it's a collective. And so it's the same idea, that you can just come in and you want to participate, you do the work. And if you do the work, the space will exist. And both of these spaces, WOW and the Lesbian Hearts Archives, own the space that they're in. Um, the Lesbian Hearts Archives actually purchased its space, um, whereas WOW was gifted it from the city for a dollar. Um, so, that you know, there's different politics, but the archives itself has, it's the largest lesbian archive in the world, and it holds the special collections or the live stories or the, what I call the golden boxes, essentially, <laughs> of women who've chosen to donate their lives. So the first collection was in 1979, and um, it was accessioned um, with the writings, the journal articles, the editing papers, the correspondence of Adrienne Rich. Adrienne Rich. Mm-hmm. Um, and since then, we've had hundreds of special collections. We also collect spoken word, audio, things like this could go into the archives and be archived. Um, so we have like the complete run of uh, WBAIs, like out of Feb, like lesbian, there was a lesbian um, radio show in WBAI. We have the Oh, what that. was it called? Out of Fem? I think it was an Out of Fem, but no, Out of Fem still exists. There was another thing, a lesbian show, WBAI. That's not there anymore. We have to check it out. But we have like thousands of spoken word tapes. We have hundreds of videos. We have um, digital collections. We have journals and newsletters that are filling two rooms large. We have the first ever journal that was, you know... Um, put into the world for lesbians called Vice Versa from 1947, wow. um, which you can now Google. Someone put it online. Um, so there's just, it's a world. I mean, there's a huge library. There's, it's it's the largest. I mean, it's huge. I have been archiving there for 10 years and I haven't even dented, you know, yeah. <laughs> the collection. So people often come and they do research there and I will stop like once a month just to give people tours and show them around and I help do events. Um, and right now we're doing, we're going to have an event this Sunday. It's going to be, um, 
a series called Stew and the View, mm. where it's like dinner and movie. So no, like exactly like a stew, like a yes, stew. yes, yeah. Stew. So two black lesbians are actually putting it together, mm. um, and they were just excited to participate. And so I am advising them mm. from the outskirts. And the um, one Arianne Benford, she is an ex girlfriend, but also the person who's going to be making the stew. And um, Zara Patterson, who is also a writer. She goes, she's doing her MFA at Pratt, and she's um, sort of introducing the films, and they're curating this event. So what are the themes of the films? Is it just about lesbian culture? Is it about they chose the films. women of color? I mean, they haven't given a curatorial statement, Okay. but my what I'm noticing is, well, it's, it's a cross-section between films that they thought was visually appealing, films that were not readily available for folks to just see on their own. So things that were really um, showing what the collection has in terms of depth. Like this is a rare find that you won't see anywhere else. Um, And then their own interests. There's just, you know, they happen to be interested in black lesbians. And so it seems that there's a trend of having the films be black lesbian films or films with black lesbians in them. And... They um, also ran into the need to get screening rights from the filmmakers and from the mm-hmm. um, direct, you know, uh, whoever the distribution company was. So that process was challenging for them. But what was great about it was they actually got to communicate with these directors who they didn't, you know, they thought it was an impossible feat. And then, you know, Green Reed is like, yeah, sure, set, you know, show it. I don't, you know, like I forgot that I made that film, <laughs> you know, yeah. or Yvonne Welvin. So this next, the first film will be After Nines, which is a film on South Africa. It's like a showing of a play that was sh- um, viewed in South Africa, where mm. all the actors were um, South African, lesbian, and gay folk. Um, and it's just telling a story of a woman who's coming out in her village. Um, and then the second film, which will be in March, um, March 6th, on a Sunday at 3, mm. um, will be showing a film by Yvonne Welbin. Um, I can't remember the name of it. But do you remember the synopsis? What's the? Um, Well, Yvonne. Oh, it's the Ruth. It's Ruth Ellis. Duh. Ruth Ellis. The Ruth Ellis film, and um, so it's a biography of a woman who um, turned one hundred, and she had been a lesbian her entire life, and so it's following her life. I've seen it. I wanted to see that. It's actually really good, and it's it's really really well done. And the director, once she was contacted, she said, "I would love to come and." do a Q&A and we were just like yeah you're you know like yeah really thank you we will see you then <laughs> so it's going to be exciting because the director will be there and she's new to New York she just uh, moved here I think last year so it's also an opportunity for her to meet community and for you know her to be around other black lesbians too so is this uh free and open to the free public? and open to the public okay yeah Awesome. Yeah, and the archives is always free and open to the public. Um, we staff the calendar the month before, so you have to go on the website to see when it's open every month. But it's usually open every week and at least twice a week. Um, I often staff on Sundays because I live in the Bronx. So if you want to come see her, you got to come on a Sunday. Exactly. It's usually <laughs> a Sunday at 2. That's my shift. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, it's the collection is open to be utilized. We want people to enter and feel connected to it. There's also going to be an art exhibition um, happening off-site in a Chelsea gallery. Um, and that's called Blackburn 2020. That's happening in March. Um, and Lots of exciting stuff in Oh, March. yeah. We're going to have a panel about it on March 23rd where we're going to talk about zines mm-hmm. and um, archival history. 
and that'll be fun. Um, me and another black lesbian Z maker is going to be there alongside two other uh, lesbian archivettes. So could you talk about your zine? And yeah, well, that's actually perfect. What is a zine circle. for people who may not know? So I remember I said I was working on two things mm-hmm. when yesterday when I was writing. The other thing I was going to mention was the zine. So I knew you knew that. Like, <laughs> I know what I'm doing. I've done this before. Um, <laughs> so what is a zine? A zine is to me, uh, it's like a pamphlet or journaling or some kind of... Um, written or drawn, visual, paper-based, distributed medium, right? Mm, So it can be a flyer, it can be a chapbook, it can be anything that you make with your hands and you probably distribute. um, So it's like handwritten. It can be be. handwritten, it can be, you know, massively photocopied, it can be uh, you know, um, collaged magazine clippings. It can be a comic, anything that you write or create and you want to distribute widely and like you want to hand distribute. I think that's probably one of the main defining points of a zine is that it's done. It's DIY. It's do it yourself. You're not like sending it to a mass produced, like, you know, printer agency to do like print on demand. I mean, I've, I actually know zinesters that do do that. We won't talk. Zinesters. Yes. I like that. <laughs> um, but I like to do it old school where you use the copy machine at your job after hours. <laughs> so you, so you <laughs> use the copy machine at your job and the purpose of the zine being DIY mm-hmm. and being distributed by hand is it's sort really of to, to like, like add to the community elements, the, the, the like, the person-to-person element. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you, of course, have people that you mail it to um, who may pre-order, but you're still, like, s- putting a stamp on something and you're probably giving it a really cool, you know... Like, um, I just got a mail a zine from Jenna Freeman, who's the Barnard Zine Librarian, and she mailed it to my house. And she makes, like, the bookmark and the little note inside was a old card catalog uh, mm-hmm. card. And, it, and and I turned to it, she, you know, she wrote it, here, hope you like my zine. And then Jenna signed it. And on the other side, I looked at, like, who's, you know, which book was it? And it was Isabel Allende's House of the Spirits. Aww. And I was like, that's my favorite book ever, you that's know? That's perfect. And I was like, how did she know? So things like that where it's it's very ephemeral, it's very textual. Mm. And you and she wrapped it in, like, you know, this weird wrapping that was just hilarious, you know, and also very artful. So... And could only be done once. Like, she probably yeah. ran out. There's only one Isabel Allende card from her card catalog. And, like, I got it, you know? It's um, like a personal touch. Exactly. There. I mean, so, okay. This is something I think about a lot. You work in a library space, mm-hmm. right? As the world becomes more and more obsessed with the internet, mm-hmm. with, like, online books and uh, Kindle. I don't even know all this stuff, okay? I'm mm-hmm. just saying. Mm-hmm. Right? There is something about having a, a book, you know, just the, the, the texture, the tactile aspect of it yeah. that is disappearing, like, in terms of people. Because I remember when I was in elementary school, we had these research projects. We would go to the card catalog and we had to, and like... you touch it. Yeah, you touch it. And there's something about that. And then we would have our little note cards and then we would mm-hmm. copy, you know, like, I, I like that aspect. And now... Um, you know, because I used to be a teacher, when I work with students, everything is like Google it online or right. whatever. So how do you feel about how information 
has sort of evolved in access to information. I think it's wonderful. <laughs> I like that um, there are things that are online. I think that there is a misconception about how much is online in terms of information. There's a lot more not online than there are things online, or in terms, rather, there are a lot more useful things not easily accessible online. Um, so what's freely openly available is often marketing, you know, and it's mm. often corporations saying, buy this, buy this, buy this, buy this. And, you know, and then there's probably an, a forward-facing blog to really, its only purpose and function is for you to see the ads that are standing next to it. Um, whereas, at, you know, information itself, you often have to pay for. So I think people should just be, um, just know the limitations of what you're looking at. And know that there, if, you're, if something sparks your interest, go deeper and go to a library because libraries pay hundreds of thousands of dollars every year to subscribe to resources that are not online mm -hmm. freely available. And then there's the, the push to put things online for free um, that are useful. And that's um, an expensive endeavor because people need resources to, to create real information. So mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a long, complicated argument. But I think, I, I think that there are, there's room for all formats, you mm -hmm. know. Um, and being a zinester, I think zines are coming back because of the influx of social media, you know, we're on our phones all day. If you look at any group of people standing, waiting for a <laughs> waiting subway for train, yeah. yeah, they're all looking down at their phone and probably having a really engaged moment with themselves and their, and their world, but they're also disconnected from anything ephemeral or anything tactile or anything with any, you know, three-dimensional element <laughs> to it. So I think that that's why the zine culture is in some ways, like, moving forward, but I'm interested in sort of, and you bring up that question, and I'm writing the scene right now for the Feminist Zine Fair, which is in February, I think it's February 28th, and um, so I'm preparing my zines, and I really want to put together a zine that talks about this obsession with the phone and the online element, but, but, but of course it's going to be lesbian, so I'm actually creating mm -hmm. a zine that's on online dating. <laughs> Oh, oh, this is good. This is awesome. And I'm thinking so of calling like, it my like, OkCupid zine. <laughs> but then I'm like, oh, but really I want to call it my Tinder zine. Or maybe I want to call it swipe right, you know. <laughs> or swipe left, depending. So I haven't named it yet. But I'm, The question I'm, at hand. Yes. <laughs> and I'm literally talking about this, like, hidden, the part of you that is private, but openly... Like the self, the, the 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 private selfie, you know. It's mm. like I want people to look at me, but this is a secret. And there's this element of of dark deviance that goes down when we're like on these online apps looking for other people. That and these moments don't really integrate into your life. It mm. can't, but it's so. Um, it almost is taking over your life. Like it's the thing that you do every day, all the time. Mm. And. Um, you know, you sort of stare at photos, go online. What is it? There are 10.8 billion users of Facebook every day, wow. right? And, like, all those people are putting out cat photos and talking to their mom. A lot of these people are doing sort of things that they wouldn't do in real life or, like, mm -hmm. talking to people they wouldn't talk to in real life or, like, obsessing over someone 
So I'm curious about this like world of online dating. And I've been on OkCupid for like, I don't know, six years or mm-hmm. something crazy, seven maybe. And I've dated probably everyone since then as someone from online. Um, like if I meet someone in person and date them, it's a rare, it's like, oh, that can happen. People do mm-hmm. that. Um and the whole process for how that comes about and, like, why I do it and how I do it and when I do it. Like, I always, like, I'm, I'm, I'm toying with making it a comic, so I'm drawing this piece of um, me on the toilet, like, with my knees up and, like, me swiping on the toilet. <laughs> I mean, this is a real thing, though, right? I mean, you said something about you actually prefer to meet people online or it's easier to just meet yeah. people online and it's more common now for you to meet people online than actually in real life. Oh yeah. I mean, it's part like of me. Yeah. You no know, dating relationship with them. I've actually had whole dating relationships with people and had not met them in person. Wow. Um, but yeah, I think that meeting someone online is, it goes along with that librarian information seeking part of myself. You get more information and it's expedient. You're not using any of your physical energy to learn things that you can easily learn through their self-presentation. Of course, mm. people will lie, but um, then you want to, you sort of, there's like, th- there's three parts of who we are. There's like our present self, but then there's our past and our future selves. And we are some combination of the three at all times, you know? So like someone who writes their profile they're writing their own self-perception, mm. but it has nothing to do with who they actually are. Or it's very, there's a, there's a, there's a level of like distance between who they are and what they write they are. And I love seeing, for example, people that I know on these interfaces, which I see all the time. I saw mm. your profile. <laughs> we, we're not talking about that right now. <laughs> Did I like it? Did you? I don't even know. Anyway, I was like, and that's like, do you like your friend if you see them? <laughs> Or do you just do you just like <laughs> yeah, pretend it didn't happen? Them. Exactly. Do you just like not talk about it? But I love to see someone's profile that I know, and then I say, sort of like, oh my god, they're they're completely delusional about who they think, you know, like or, or they, they're tell or they're saying a, or they're presenting a side of themselves that they think people would want to know. Exactly, but they don't show. They're sort of like leaving out that really big thing. Yeah, that makes them crazy, or that makes them anxious, or that makes them depressing, or that makes them hilarious you know like you sort of you know and then it really gives you perspective like how am I putting myself forward and what am I leaving out and then what is everyone putting forward and leaving out and why are we all single (laughs) (laughs) or married but that you know okay so that to me also speaks to what you were saying earlier about online access to information Mm -hmm. it's like what we see online in terms of resources is sort of what big corporations want us to see or what a company thinks that we should see, but it's not always everything that's out there. Mm -hmm. And so why do you think in the age where we can access books online or do everything essentially or find out what we think we can learn everything we think we can learn online, why do you think books are still important and going to the library is still important? Why does it matter? Well, I would say that we, it's sort of like it's important to date online, but also to meet the person you're dating online, (laughs) to go deeper, to read the book review and the jacket, but also to at least read a chapter 
if not two, um, of the book. Really, it's just, it's really about not making everything so surface. There was a, a, so in terms of corporations, Match Group is the company that owns OkCupid and also Tinder. And they just released an IPO and they released it way too high and now they're plummeting. But, uh-oh, I have to cough. <coughs> she's sick, but she's still doing the podcast. Isn't that great? <laughs> Thank she's you an for awesome, me cough. she's an awesome friend. Um, <laughs> it's just New York, <laughs> you know, it's just a slog in my throat. Um, but yeah, I think that there's, there's a, there's sort of, there's a lot of implication for what our participation does to these crowdsourcing models of online activity. If we're not on it, the product doesn't exist, mm-hmm. right? Um, but if we don't participate, then we have no product and then what? Maybe we'll have more lesbian spaces? I don't know. Um, I think that there's, that libraries are a really great place, libraries and archives actually Mm -hmm. are really great places to move outside of, I'm going to use this term, take it as you wish, the matrix, Mm -hmm. um, and to go into the back end, if you will, of, so, you know, when you have a WordPress site, there's a GUI, a general user interface, it's like, what? it looks like when you're supposed to put a, um, it says insert email here and then insert password here. And it's user, it's easy to use Mm. um, and it looks clean and you know how to get into it. Someone built that whole template for you to be at ease in your creation of a space or of an online presence or of a space. And I think we should challenge ourselves to be information creators and, and look at code, look at, open source material, um, go to different sites and try and replicate that. Um, because we, if we're not in control of how we're moving through the world and navigating through the world, even if it's an online space, then we're just being, you know, shifted, navigated. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's something about the command line and knowing what that is and knowing what to enter into it so that you can move forward on your own. Um, which, you know, I'm still a beginner, uh, but I think that the, the world of creating spaces, like physical spaces, like the Westminster Archives or Mitch Fest or Wild Cafe Theater, or if it's online spaces like these apps, um, like the apps that Match Group has created, um, we have to be in the space of creation mm-hmm. in whichever direction. So, like, what you're doing here is a perfect example of that. It's, like, mm-hmm. forging some new possibility. And then seeing where it takes us. Mm-hmm. One thing that I would like to know, because you are such an experienced librarian, is mm-hmm. are there any, like, secret jewels of the library system <laughs> that maybe the average New Yorker has access to but doesn't know about? Um, secret jewels. Mm-hmm. You mean outside of what's inside of the center of a book? <laughs> <laughs> that was a librarian joke. <laughs> it was. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, there's near public library, and it's dungeons. Like if you go underneath into the sort of 
clothes stacks um, beneath the ground. You can see, like, you know, where all the books are stored, and that's always fun. Wait, how do you get to do that? You have to be a librarian. Oh, so it's not something like secret <laughs> New York City tour, no. like, you can take... Maybe if your aunt is a librarian, she can take you down. Oh, okay. Brooklyn Public has it, too, the main, the central branch. They have sort of, like, a vault underneath. So you can so go down cool. there and look at the, some, like, old clippings of the Daily Eagle from, like, you know, that are disintegrating. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I think that that's probably, when I think of, like, secret secret spaces, I think of, like, archival spaces mm-hmm. that are... The underground The vault. underground sections, yeah. And, like, how many books are kept in these vaults or sections? Exactly. I mean, now, because of all the politics of, the New, York, of New York City and space, um, things are outsourced to like New Jersey and then they get shipped back in when they're recalled because there's not enough space to hold all the books mm. um, so yeah but even like the architecture of this city allows for those spaces and then new spaces being built don't allow for that so like even the Graduate Center Library um, is based in what used to be B. Altman which was a huge um, department store similar to Ma- the Macy's and 34th mm-hmm. Street and we have like a Z level and the library is on the first floor, and then there's like, well, there's like all these little floors beneath. Oh wow! <laughs> that like super levels. Right exactly. That's really cool. And it's not really easy to breathe. <laughs> down. Because it's so it's like down it's, below. It's, it's it's it feels a little moldy. I'm just Ooh, gonna say not so good for the lungs. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. So Sean, what's your favorite library, and what's your favorite? book, archive, stumbled upon resource that you've Mm. ever found that you're like, oh man. I mean, my favorite library is still the library at the Lesbian History Archives. It's so typical. It's okay. Cool. Um, Because it's not about the architecture of the building, which is what a lot of people tend to like, you know, guffaw about when they enter a library. It's like, ooh, look at the walls. (laughs) And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to be like, ooh, look at the books on the walls. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and, um, I mean, when you walk into that room, firstly, there's a big comfy couch, and you can sit on it. And you can have tea and coffee while you open up a book. Um, it's organized by first name mm. of the author, not last, because that would be patriarchal. Um, the nonfiction's organized by title. And it has just... And un, I mean, there's no way I can read every book on those shelves. And that's, it's like, it's almost like a fountain of youth because I walk in there and I'm like, I can't ever die because I have to read all these books, you mm-hmm. know? And, um, and then to look at the authors and know that I have met a lot of them or, you know, I go to the poetry section just yesterday on Sunday, I was there and, um, Ariane and Zara were asking for materials of South African lesbian anything to add to the viewing of student view and so we just checked the catalog to see what was there and then there we ended up coming across you know I sort of put in the catalog a search query AFR asterisk so everything that was African Africa mm. Afri- Afro you know everything came up and then I I came up with one that looked like it was a typo and it was like Africa Africanus so it was A F R I C A N E S S. 
and it was by Holiday Simmons. It was a book of poetry, and I was like, I know Holiday. Holiday used to perform at Rainbow Penny when I was a producer, you know. So then it just there's these moments where it becomes uh, circular, where community really does rain forward, and then you really just um, feel like a larger person, mm-hmm. and you become a part of the collection and you just grow and you expand. I think that's the most exciting part, right? Finding yourself mm-hmm. in these archives. That's right? true. Finding the piece of yourself. Mm-hmm. Because so often we don't in so many ways. One of the reasons um, I want to start this podcast was because there are so many amazing stories from you know lesbian women, queer women, um, that are not captured. So I'm so happy that the Lesbian History Archives exists because we need to have our voices preserved. Mm -hmm. Um, Actually, one of my aunts, she was the editor of the Amsterdam News. Mm -hmm. and um, I think I knew that. I think you told me that. Yeah, and she's (laughs) also, her name is Constance Curtis, and Mm -hmm. she was also um, an out lesbian. Mm -hmm. And... I unfortunately never got to have a conversation with her because she passed away Mm -hmm. when I was like a baby. But just to think about what her life was like in the 60s -hmm. as a black lesbian, you know, in terms of my life now, and just have a conversation. Yeah. would be fabulous. So just... You have to donate some of her stuff to the archive. I know, I do. I do. (laughs) I'm like, oh my God, Julia, what's happening? I need photographs. (laughs) But, I mean, just having lives preserved that way yeah. is really exciting. So what was your favorite piece of whatever you've ever found or, oh or book? Favorite. Or one of your favorites <sighs> that you think everyone should read? Uh, <laughs> make that sound good. Oh, <laughs> that <God>. doesn't help. <laughs> um, how do you choose? I literally ran into the, the drama of too much information overload. And to respond to that, I created a zine. Hmm. Um, so that there could be another, so someone else could experience the information overload and then choose within that. Um, so I made a black lesbians in the seventies zine and it was from specifically a collection at the archives. Um, that collection is the, um, subject files the African ancestral lesbian subject files, literally a single box of multiple boxes. So just opening a single box, I found names of women, organizations, writings, clippings of um, poetry, uh, drawings, just this cornucopia. I mean, literally, like it just kept coming and I was like, so multi-orgasmic, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> And it was just, I had to just make a zine, and I literally made the zine so that it was a smattering of images and clippings, and just like I had seen it on the table, all smattered about, but I organized it chronologically for the year, the decade of the 70s. And I ended up presenting the zine during this uh, year-long conference. It was called uh, Lesbians, uh, in America they call us Dykes, Lesbians, Lesbian Lives in the 70s, and it was mm. done by the Center for Lesbian Gay Studies at the Graduate Center. So I did the spring event, the April spring event at the archives. And it was called Black Lesbians in the 70s, an at-home tour to the Lesbian History Archives. And I thought like five people would come, you know, maybe a handful, like, oh, you know, this was sort of not pre-Facebook, 
it was in 2010, but it wasn't like when you, everything you did, you made a Facebook event. Like, you posted it, yeah. Right, it wasn't like that. So we sort of just had like an email list and like hope for the best. And I'm talking about it was so packed that women were, firstly, women came from like Connecticut, New Jersey, some people mm-hmm. were, they're from Philly and D.C. And they were, <laughs> you know, in their walkers. Oh. Um with canes and then young young women also I mean it was so intergenerational um people were sitting on the steps they were they were on the floor the, the space was packed over 100 black lesbians and like you know like almost a handful of allies it was so amazing and there they were just and I had um employed players so I employed like four or five black lesbians to like help interpret the zines and sort of like a performance and it was just, it was so magical. It's amazing. <laughs> there were so many memorable p- moments for that day, but one memorable moment that I can't shake off was um, Cheryl Denye came. Oh my God, what? <laughs> and she, I mean, and she's not even like the most famous person that came. Yeah, but, like, but for she's me, awesome. I just had a huge crush on her. So she came and she was wearing these like, you know, red and blue striped. Um, <laughs> what do they call when you... Um, they, suspenders? Yeah, suspenders. She's speechless right now. She can't even. And she was all like, John. <laughs> and I was like, Cheryl. And I like ended up like pulling. Oh my God. I was I, oh I just God. don't know what I did and how I did it and how I was to tell. I don't think I can't even tell the story because it was, it was like that. I was wow. able to touch Cheryl Dent. So <laughs> Cheryl Dent makes suspenders. <laughs> and, and this you is almost before, melted. Well, among other things. <laughs> Um, this was before she made her porn film and she was like asking me if I knew of anyone who would participate and I was like is she hitting on me does she want to like do me right now in the archives because we could do that like we go to the bathroom (laughs) and of course I'm just like you know barfing at the mouth like who knows what I was saying and I think I was like oh you should talk to Ignacio and then Ignacio ended up Ignacio ended up having a party that evening and then Mm. Cheryl was like, will I see you at the party? And I was like, yes. And then I didn't go because I'm a lame ass. You didn't go? You missed out on I that? I know. So, Sean. Anyway, that was a You moment. are. <laughs> lost moment in history. You know, part of this podcast is also focused on showcasing innovative women. Mm-hmm. And you are an innovative woman. What does it mean to you when you hear the term innovative? And why do you think you are? Hmm. <clears throat> I think innovative is really about bird's eye viewing the landscape of what and seeing what your eyes catch, you know, like really pausing at the top of a broad, um, a broad conversation, a broad history, um, just really taking a bird's eye view and then deciding what parts of the world you want to contribute to, mm-hmm. right? And then how, and the contribution is, you know, can be multi, it can, can move through the conversation in a way that's impacting. Um, and so it's not necessarily about doing anything new, because ultimately I don't think that we have, we don't have the luxury or the, we are, we're sort of, in a place of we're cursed with the mm. burden of repetition. Um, 
And I say that only because I've been able to absorb so much history. Like nothing is being done for the first time. In fact, when I was doing the zine and I was looking through the African ancestral lesbian subject file, I saw that in 1990, someone else had gone through the archives and written down every black lesbian mm. name. And even in the 60s, someone else had wanted to find all of the black lesbians. And there was, there's sort of this monotonous um, emphasis on finding oneself and finding each other and like reaching for community and, and, and documenting community and making sure our names don't fall and really um, visibility existing, being visible and making sure that others are visible. And that's age old, you know, that's so important. It's right? so important. So for I think, every generation. Yeah. And, it, and whether that's someone's purpose or anything else, it's really, and part of what we tell the doctoral students at the graduate center when they're making their, writing their dissertations, it's not about saying that you're writing something new, you know, you're adding to a conversation. Mm. And that's where, you know, a literature review would come into play. You have to say, here's who has already done this. Here's who has already made these points in history. And here's where I'm picking up the conversation. And you're just seeing it through to the next point, you know. So we're finite beings. We can only do so much, but we can do it all. You know, we can do all of what we want to do to our greatest ability. And it should not stand alone. It should stand in community. It should be a part of a conversation that's larger than us. Mm. So that's why I would say innovation is or innovative women. It's women who are participating in the conversation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I like that. What advice would you give to someone who may be interested in becoming a librarian or, or, or majoring in information sciences or Go to Queens College. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Because CUNY is the best. CUNY is awesome. Um, I would say, and because it's less expensive. (laughs) Yeah. And you'll be done in two years, and then you can work with me. Um, No, really, I would say if someone's interested in um, participating in the information sciences to really um, know that they, it's not some place where you're going to get rich. (laughs) So there's that. It's a, it's a position of service. And there are lots of opportunity in this field, and you can really see, you can have a career that you love, Mm -hmm. um, and that is lifelong, and it can tie into your love of books, your love of objects, your love of data, your love of technology, you can, your love of people, your love of children. I mean, there's so many different facets to library science and being a librarian that I when I can't imagine myself being in any other position. And Audre Lorde was a librarian. Mm. So there you have it. That's all you really needed to know. <laughs> that's all you just, really You could have done this interview in one line. Audre Lorde was a librarian. And that's and all that's you that. needed to exactly. know. Exactly. We're actually celebrating her birthday um, at Hunter College on February 18th. And I don't know when this is going to air, but um, it'll be from at 6.30 and Sonia Sanchez is going to be there. Whoa. Dr. Elizabeth Lord Rollins, Audre Lorde's daughter, is going to be there. Whoa. Dr. Gloria Joseph, Audre Lorde's uh, most recent, you know, the, her lover before she died, um, who's um, actually coming out with a new book. And this is the official book launch. Um, and it's called The Wind is the Spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, and then colon, you know, Audre Lorde, something, something. And so Dr. Joseph is going to be there to... Um, unveil the book. I'm in it. I have a, a say in there where I'm 
talking, I'm interviewing the Salsa Soul women who were the Mm -hmm. women who started the first lesbian organization, the first black lesbian organization in the country. Um, They weren't the founders, but there are people who were present and they wanted to talk about Audrey's contribution to Salsa Soul Mm -hmm. and black lesbian community in New York City at the time. That's awesome. Um, And so there's, I mean, other people, there are going to be other poets, um, the... Villarosa women, Linda Villarosa and Clara Villarosa, who are the publishers for the book, are going to be there. It's just going to be, you know, the yeah. Salsa Soul women will be there because they're the ones who are um, featured in this article that I did. There's just, I can, I mean, it's going to be one of these nights. Magical. You know? Yeah, and the, the Lesbian Hearst Archives is going to table, and we're going to um, have our laptops with, with um, headphones for people to listen to Audrey's voice for um, from her digital collection that we have already actually digitized online so people can listen to her voice and hear her poetry and, you know, just really be present with her. And I still remember it was the Pratt University library students who digitized her material for us and put it online and created a beautiful online exhibit. And we, before putting it online, uh, Maxine, who was the one communicating with Pratt, she sent a copy of the digital files to Audre Lorde's daughter. Mm -hmm. And I remember coming from, you know, coming to the archives for a shift, and there was a message on the phone. So I go, okay, let's play the message, you know, taking my coat off, press play, making myself some tea, and then I just stop. I practice, I like drop, <laughs> you know what I'm doing, and I just start, and I'm listening, and it was Audrey Lloyd's daughter saying how thankful she was mm. to receive the audio, and that they were dealing with the health of their father, and this was, you know, she, she was literally just so thankful. And it just really personalized well, what everyone else sees as history. This is, these are real people with real lives. And mm. this this work is really just, you know, it's, it's iconic. But at the end of the day, these are people who have been our foremothers. Mm. Or, you know, they, they really deserve the honoring. Mm-hmm. So, ah, I'm getting all... No, but I mean, it's... You know, the voice, mm-hmm. right? The voice is so important. Yeah. And just sort of giving life to mm-hmm. our ancestors who have mm-hmm. gone through similar struggles, who understand what it is to feel like an outsider sometimes. Mm-hmm. But I think what is so exceptional exceptional about that is we are all looking for a connection to a community. Mm-hmm. And often we feel like we're alone. But when you're able to tap into a resource to hear a voice from the past that sort of resonates with your own, it's remarkable. Yeah. So thank you so much it's for the true. work that you're doing. It's it's amazing and it's inspiring. And thank you so much Can for... Can I ask you a question before we end? Oh, I was about to end, but I guess not. Yeah, yes. Why did you name... Tell me about your name for your podcast. Sure. Well, I mean... Often I go through life and I don't, or well, growing up, I've, I went through life kind of feeling like an outsider in the sense that I wasn't really girly and I wasn't a boy. Um, and so I sort of was misunderstood and seen as in between. Mm-hmm. And I started to think of myself sort of as an outsider. But the reason that this podcast is called Outside Hers is I really want to talk about what it means to be a woman and what it means to do things that are not necessarily 
hers, mm-hmm. right? But more about just understanding what it means to be a woman, but also doing things outside of that, and mm-hmm. that that's okay, mm-hmm. and that there's so many things that exist outside of what is considered hers, because mm-hmm. that's sort of who I am. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to take the time to celebrate that difference and document it. Nice. So thank you, Sean, for joining me today. Is there a quote that you live by that you'd like to close with? Oh, my God. There is a quote. You cannot look it up. <laughs> I know it. It's on my... I, I, I She's can't. looking it up. I have to edit this part out. I know you do. I might not. She's still typing. No, I just had to open my computer. Thank you very much. Okay. Um, it's... Um, <laughs> It's by Toni Morrison. Uh huh. And whenever I'm away from, you know, and people email me, I put it as my autobiography. Oh, yeah, I saw it before. (laughs) And I love it so much. Can you share it with us? Yes. It's from her book Jazz, which is my favorite Toni Morrison book. And she says on page 184 a before supper feeling when someone waits to eat, although it was a private place with an opening closed to the public. Once inside, you could do what you please, disrupt things, rummage, touch, and move. Change it all to a way it was never meant to be. A green dress, a rocking chair without an arm, a circle of stones for cooking, jars, baskets, pots, a doll, a spindle, earrings, a photograph, a stack of sticks, a set of silver brushes, and a silver cigar case. Also, also, a pair of man's trousers with buttons of bone, carefully folded, a silk shirt, faded pale and creamy, except at the seams. There, both thread and fabric were a fresh, sunny yellow. But where is she? Mm, I love that. That's like the world I live in, that cave. I love that. I love that. (laughs) Well, this has been a really amazing conversation. Thank you for taking the time to share with us. Thank you, Julia. And we'll be back next week with a new episode. Until then, take care of yourself, be you, and be awesome. Bye.